welcome. Legally Brief presents Changing Our Institutions. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer who works with private and public companies, educational institutions, and sports organizations to identify root causes, confront historic failures, and boldly implement change to our institutions. This podcast is for corporate change agents, disruptors, and mindset mavericks who are committed to making our institutions work better for themselves and the next generation. I want to remind you that while I hope you enjoy every episode in the series that we're doing on changing our institutions, the content of this programming is not a substitute for speaking directly with an attorney who understands your unique circumstances. If you're looking for past episodes or information, please head on over to my website. There you'll find information and you can sign up for newsletters and you can learn more about me and my practice. I'm glad you're here. Let's get ready and let's talk and make some changes. Hello and welcome back. It is African American History Month, February 2023, and I am kicking off this month with an opportunity to share with you, my listeners, thoughts on first the African American family, the experience of being in that community. What is an African American family? What does it look like? Dispelling some myths, maybe some common held beliefs really diving in because we know a society that's healthy, communities that are healthy, they start with healthy families. And African-American families have a long history of love, warmth, and community. I am the product of a strong African-American, well, Caribbean-American family. I have to add that in there. And one thing that I know that I've struggled with later in life has become more conscious, you know, as you're young, you would process and just digest different media sources, television programs. I'm of an air coming off of looking at things like the Jeffersons, All in the Family. Those things were still popular. Good Times, even what was the other one? Different Strokes, even Little House on the Prairie. All of these programmings collectively sent messages to me that were negatively impact the way that family was viewed, Black families were viewed. And I know from interacting with others over time as I then entered my you know, 30s and 40s and I went out into the workforce outside of my own community, I encountered and saw how negative influences that would define the Black family were also processed by other individuals and In turn, that's how individuals may have viewed or thought that Black families and Black communities interact. It's sad, but true. Many times, starting, I would say, historically, unfortunately, in our culture and in our country, there's been a negative view of the African-American as an individual, Black bodies, and also, therefore, Black families have been viewed negatively. That's the entire history of our country, the all country that we love. 
But in particular, when you boil that down and when you think about the impact that it's had on this systemic view, the systemic perspective that was then made federal policies, state policies by way of such things as not only school segregation, just to name a few, housing, redlining in cities, the selective distribution of city services, the failure to promote African-American businesses, the failure to equally fund educational projects, schools, all of those directly impacted the African-American individual, therefore the family, over-policing in my area where I live, that most recently looked like stop and frisk in New York City. It was the constant, relentless targeting of African-American individuals that reverberated and had an impact on our families. And the cruel irony is that in movies, in stories, on the news, popular culture seemed to turn the story, rewrite the story, gaslight the African-American individual and the African-American family into thinking that it was their fault that their family units were shaken, they were not as strong. We know that we in the African-American community knew that to be true and a dishonest portrayal, a horrifying portrayal of our community. However, you know, when you don't have the platform, when you don't have the mic, when you don't have the, you're not controlling the larger narrative, you're left there to feel, you know, somewhat angered, enraged, but you persist and you go on. And that's what I know to be the African-American family, close, caring, resilient, humorous. In my own house, there's lots of humor, even humor about the crazy portrayals of different individuals and roles within the family. By way of one example, in the 1980s, it was a popular view held by individuals in popular media, even you know outspoken individuals such as then-President Ronald Reagan, by portraying African-American mothers as, quote-unquote, poverty queens or welfare queens, I'm sorry, welfare queens, as if that was some aspiration of mothers who were working hard, that they wanted to only sit home and procreate, have babies, and collect measly checks versus what we in the African-American community always knew to be true, that we prefer, want, desired, sought, chased after education, be it from historically Black colleges or entrepreneurial pursuits, that the last thing you wanted to do was interact with a government that would humiliate you standing on some welfare line to be turned down. You know, that was the last thing that you wanted to do. So that portrayal, I thought that we would use this first episode on the show as we kick off Black History Month and what I will refer to as African-American History Month to talk about 
something so central to the history of our country. And in particular, as we celebrate African American History Month, the Black family. When I lived in Chicago, this was in just around in the 1990s, I was invited to dinner by, I guess, a colleague at the time. I was taking, I was working there and a colleague who was not African-American, she invited me out, she and her husband, they said that they wanted me to meet someone. I guess it was kind of a blind date or a setup, so to speak. This individual was African-American. So they thought it would just be the greatest thing. You know, I'm single, I'm in the city, I was new to Chicago. Would you like to come on this date? She had always been very friendly to me. So they came and they picked me up. They picked me up actually in a limo. That was their driver picked me up and the young man was in the car. So we went out to dinner. It was, you know, this is before I could, you know, afford these types of dinners. And the couple was a little bit older than I was, much more established. And we sat down for dinner and their conversation changed over to something that I will never forget. It seared a memory in my mind when the conversation began to talk about Black families and the, let's call him Bob. Bob, who was not African-American and his wife, they started the conversation and he said very confidently with all authority that the reason why there were so many problems, issues, poverty, joblessness, educational disadvantages, crime within the African-American community was the African-Americans' failure to support and have a complete family structure. And that was because that African-American men deserted their families. They left their families. They refused to take care of them. And instead, he went on to talk about how they cared more about drugs, about selling, about being immoral, sleeping with more than one woman. And I just remembered it was almost as if I had been punched in the face and then, you know, water, a bucket of cold water poured over my head. And I remember slowing my fall and thinking, what have I gotten into? What is going on here? And then the, my, I guess my blind date, let's call him Mike. He was sitting, I remember he was sitting to my left. He starts to nod his head in agreement with Bob. And he said, yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. Black men just don't know how to be good fathers and good parents. And they always leave. And that's the reason. And (laughs) Believe me, I was much younger at the time, much less, you know, less outspoken. I was just unbelievably taken back. I remember that the dinner ended not, I don't even remember eating after that. I don't, I remember us leaving and not even, I couldn't even look at the blind date after that, but this memory stuck with me. So while that dinner, that incident left a mark on me, saddened me, for many years, it highlighted again how influential the negative messaging had been received and 
had become a part of the narrative that white America, non-white America also sees itself as evidenced in the blind date in that story. So moving to the celebration and helping show the truth about the experience of being a part of Black family, let's look at some facts. Let's look at some numbers from a report written by Christiana Lloyd, Marta Alvara Hammond, and Juliana Carlson, and Deja Logan that was published on March 5th, 2021. The title being Family Economics and Geographic Characteristics of Black Families with Children. It is a wonderful brief that I encourage you reading. And it provides a summary and historical context on the structure of the Black family, employment, and income. They also took time to shed light on some of the federal policies that have created and maintained and really added to are the foundation of the structural inequities that have plagued and have been the true source of problems faced by the Black family. So looking at some of the numbers, as of 2021, Black Americans currently make up about 13% of the total population. That number could be adjusted up or down depending on how the data is read. But let's say, for argument's sake, 13% of the total population of the United States, that works to be about 42 million in number. As of 2019, according to this report, there were 2.8 million Black children in the United States around the age of four. The report goes on to discuss that it's structural racism in the United States that has been the source and the problem of the infliction of harm, the dismantling of the Black family. And it encourages us to look at this through a historical context to really understand. When we think about the culturally, the Black family in itself, there is within the African-American community and has always been high value that's been placed on partnerships, on marriage, on children. But it goes, it has to go with viewing this value that the Black family has had. You have to look at the institutional and the structural barriers that often prevent these values from being realized. By way of an example, if you are participating, interacting with institutions that are always underestimating, placing low value, depriving of education, of housing, fairness and jobs, and even, not because of, but even in spite of, say you obtain an education, you work 10 times as hard that, you know, that saying that we all hear, you have to work 10, 20 times as hard to be half as good or to get any recognition. It was something that was said in my house. If you're always working and grinding and you think that now you can present yourself, you know, I, not only am I coming from a loving family, but now I have these 
degrees behind my name and I work the hardest. I arrive the first, I leave the last, but there's still the perception that you're less than and you're not relatable. When you encounter that outside of the home and within these institutions, then these are the reasons why the Black family, first as individuals and then at family structures, why there's problems that's faced and why there's the additional struggle, the additional burden. The percentage, also when we look at numbers, the percentage of Black women, according to this report that we're talking about, it has it has been a drop that has lowered. We see that currently there's about 37% of African-American women that are in some type of partnership living together, committed, but wouldn't be considered in your traditional marriage situation. One of the reasons, as cited by this report, that you've got to look at that when you think about or ask the question, why aren't Black women getting married at the same rate as other groups? This report cites that the lack of employment opportunities for Black men are one of the contributing factors. Also, numbers are cited as to fertility rates for Black women. There has been a slight decline over the past 10 years, which seems to indicate that African-American women are having children at the same age, and I'll quote this, at which they may have, because or at which they may be enrolled in school or entering the workforce. And that could be a reason for that decline. And all of this we're talking about in context when we look at the Black family or shifts and changes to the family and remembering that these shifts and changes are all impacted by outside forces and not impacted because there's what has been sold to so many, both Black and white, as evidenced in the story that I talked about earlier, It's not because there's a lack of values or a lack of commitment or an internal breakdown or a propensity to be more promiscuous or other ideals that are sold or that African-American women, as I said before, are welfare queens. None of that is actually true. Instead, what this report is saying and what I'm putting out there for you is that, you know, for different reasons, unemployment, reduced birth, African-American women are pursuing or having to pursue jobs, having to pursue a workforce, not having the benefit for generations of choosing to stay home, having that decision, but instead being forced and required to go to work. And the point I made earlier, the over-policing of African-American families, stop and frisk, resulting in whether it's men or women or our youth being pulled out of the family. And because of that, the public policy initiative, I also, you also should go to that site, follow them, subscribe to their newsletter. They are very, very good with giving, they're a think tank, giving really hard data numbers around the over-policing of African-American communities and in showing exactly how that over-policing has resulted in the resources of African-American homes being redirected away from things such as clothing, food, education, and instead having to pay for 
interactions with the criminal justice system, which includes lawyers, fines, fees, even if you have a member of your family who's incarcerated, supplying them with the resources within the prison, having to pay for the criminal rates to interact with your family, be it through phone system, through email, all of those resources being directed away from the Black families that are over-policed and having to spend that time now trying to detangle your loved one from the criminal justice system. All of these things impact the Black family. I want to take a moment and go to another report that led to and was instrumental, I submit, comma, because you know, that is, that's my opinion. But when we go back to the example that I talked about before, and I use the example of Tom, who was a non-white individual sitting at the dinner table and his belief that fathers deserted their families, that it was something internally wrong with African-American culture that resulted in the breakdown of our neighborhoods and our communities instead of the true culprit, which we knew to be institutionals that had those faults baked into them. Please take some time this African-American History Month to read the 1965 Moynihan Report entitled The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. I first heard of this report several, several years ago and often refer to it whenever I am frustrated by the constant gaslighting or portrayal of the African-American individuals and families, even in movies to this day, were portrayed, be it in cartoons, as still being buffoons, being loud, unprofessional, and all of the other you know, late words or labels. But this report was actually a report where our money, all of our money, taxpayer money, funded this report with graphs, with statistics and all. And it was a report led by Senator Moynihan, an individual that I actually met and my time working in politics. And when you read this report, one, you know, it starts out by saying, you know, you're under the belief that the report is the American government, their idea at the time to really peel back the curtain and see why it is that Black communities struggle with poverty, struggle with housing, struggle with relationships with the police. And I'll read just uh, portions of it. Let's see. There's a portion that said, Three centuries of sometimes unimaginable mistreatment have taken their toll on the Negro people. The harsh fact is that as a group at the present time, in terms of ability to win out in the competition of American life, they are not equal to most of those groups with which they are competing. Collectively, in the spectrum of American ethnic and religious and regional groups where some get plenty and some get none. Some send 80% of their children to college and others pull out of school at the eighth grade. Negroes are among the weakest. The most difficult fact for American, excuse me, for white 
Americans to understand is that in these terms, the circumstances of the Negro American community in recent years has probably been getting worse and not better. It goes on, this report led by Senator Moynihan goes on to talk about a little bit of, in terms of dollars of income, standards of living, and years of education, that the gap between the Negro and other groups in American society is widening. The thesis of this paper is that these events in combination confront the nation with a new kind of problem. Measures that have worked in the past or would work for most groups in the present will not work here. Senator Moynihan and this group of senators goes on to say that a national effort is required that will give a unity of purpose to the many activities of the federal government in this area, directing a new kind of national goal, the establishment of a stable Negro family structure. It's almost hard for me to finish that last statement because this report and there, you know, you can look at it piecemeals. You can say, you can applaud this report for even Senator Moynihan for even, you know, dedicating the time to looking at the issue. This report has been controversial for years, for decades, even at the time it was released. But what stands out to me, again, similar to the dinner that I talked about and what is a cold bucket of water on the heads of the African-American community as individuals collectively and as families, is that this report believes and says that a new perspective, so to speak, new resources, new time needs to be looked at so that the establishment of a stable Negro family structure can be achieved. And that is the problem. That is the misconception that inherently within African-Americans as individuals, we lack the ability as individuals and then collectively as families, bigger as, as communities, as neighbors to create a stable family structure. And that was such a damaging statement. It's a damaging statement to be internalized by African-Americans at the time, referred to as Negroes. And also it was a damaging perception to take on by white America because it said that there was something that we didn't know how to create and nurture, cultivate our own families, which it's a gut punch. And so that's why we take this episode to celebrate what has always been true, what has always been true. I have a client who was incarcerated in 1972 in Birmingham, Alabama. He was 15 years old at the time. He was the age of my son is now. And without any family, without a mother, without a father, without any counsel, was accused of it. Never, ever had any prior contacts in any way with the criminal justice system. Was into going to school, playing ball, doing what 15-year-olds do, but had been deserted by his mother, was being raised by what we know to be a violent paternal aunt, maternal aunt, I excuse me, uncle and aunt. And as 
The Birmingham police arrived at this young man's house, woke him up. He had no idea what was going on. The uncle and aunt turned him over to the police. And the charges that he was told that he would be pleading guilty to would be the violent murder of two Caucasian women, two older women. And these, the crime scenes were filled with fluid and blood, none of which there was no connection of him to this crime. Forensically, there were no eyewitnesses connecting him to this crime. In fact, the only thing that connected him to these incidents, really horrific incidents, were the typed confession, not written and unsigned by Andre Lewis. That's his name, Andre Lewis. They were. It was an unsigned confession of a teenager typed out by 1972 Birmingham, Alabama police. And he was taken after being deprived of family, attorney, food, clothing, brutally beaten in a Birmingham police station. He was taken before a judge and without a full allocution. And what that means is that when you're going to plead guilty in front of a judge and the prosecutor, in front of the attorney, the court inquires as to your exact role. And they do that, you know, to ensure that you're not being forced, ensure that you understand what you're pleading guilty to. So for example, it could sound something like, uh, Mr. Lewis, what is it that you're saying that you did? Where did this happen? What was your role? What was your part? So there was no type of allocution. There was no grand jury, no probable cause hearing, nothing to that effect. And instead he was brought before a judge. This type statement was submitted to the judge. And with that, this young man, this teenager was, and still is to this day, he sits in an Alabama prison. He's going on, I believe it's 65, maybe 66 now at this time, has been, has never walked. He has never driven a car. He has never had the benefit of having a family, a family outside. And that's the point. That's the reason why I tell you this, because within that prison system, he has obtained his education. He has obtained degrees, certifications. He is an ordained minister. He has become, and he is evidence of what African-Americans do, even in the most brutal, unimaginable situations, although he has tried to appeal. And he won parole in, I believe it was 19, I want to say 1995 or 1998. He won release by parole but had that maliciously and politically had that parole revoked by then governor, Alabama governor, Don Siegel, whom I might add himself, Don Siegel, was convicted and spent time in, in a prison. He had that parole revoked. But during the time that Andre Wallace has spent in this prison, Alabama prisons are the most inhumane, atrocious, violent prisons within the entire world. He has managed to create a family. He has mentored hundreds of young men. And so I work with his local council and we lead a team of lawyers and activists who are working to try to get Mr. Wallace released on a parole. He has had wardens come to his parole hearings and speak on his behalf. 
And this is the subject of a separate podcast. And because of the corruption and because of loopholes with the parole board, this gentleman who now is unable to walk, who is a diabetic, who has other chronic illnesses, he has been denied medical release several times, but we're not giving up. And Mr. Wallace continues to create a family and mentor and inspire others. So the Black family, in spite of what the 1965 Moynihan report said, that resources need to be used to stabilize the Black family. That's not what's needed. Instead, what is needed and what has always been needed is the celebration of the Black family, the removal of institutional and systemic injustices that have prevented a thriving of the Black family. So I end this first series in Black History Month with a reminder that Black History Month is only possible because of the wonderful, amazing community of Black families that make up this nation. And we continue to grow, we continue to survive in spite of the issues that are faced in the culture. And it will get better. I know it will get better. I've seen it get better. It's gotten better from my parents' lifetime to my lifetime. And I hope and I know that in this country that it will get better for my sons. So continue to tune in to the coming episodes for this celebration of this wonderful, amazing African-American History Month 2023. Thank you. And until next time, be well. information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed. <laughs>